Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. We're recording today at Thrive Global. We're in downtown Manhattan, right on Broadway. These are Ariana Huffington's office. She's been kind enough to host us. Uh, and as a result, you are going to hear the sounds of the city, some sounds you may not usually hear on our podcast, sirens and horns and trucks. Uh, but it's all because we're in a very dynamic environment with Ariana Huffington, old friend, longtime supporter, mentor to many of us, uh, author most recently of Thrive. Uh, and before that, I think The Sleep Revolution, many books, but those are the two most recent. And we're at the headquarters of Thrive Global, which is this organization that Ariana created, I'm going to say, four years ago, Ariana, or more? Actually, two years two ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Two and years I ago. Uh, and it is thriving, and we're going to want to hear all about that. So thank you so much for being with us. And we're here with Claudia Fleming, longtime friend and champion for Share Our Strength. She is now at the North Fork Table and Inn is an extraordinary pastry chef, but also an extraordinarily generous advocate uh, of our anti-hunger work. So we're thrilled to have you here, Claudia. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I think is interesting about the two of you is that you are working in a space where, Ariana, you talk and write a lot about stress, about defining success differently, uh, about mental health, and mindfulness, and uh, those are all issues which have become rampant and ragingly important in the restaurant industry. When Anthony Bourdain committed suicide, yes. a lot of people started to then focus on that issue. But I'd love to hear you, Ariana, talk about how you came to that. Of course, you're so well known for creating the Huffington Post, um, but now Thrive Global represents, to me, it represents kind of a, a wisdom that uh, only comes with some seasoning and a little bit later in life. The wisdom of the elders. <laughs> well, it's so important. And I guess one of the questions, and I like so many things that you write and talk about resonate with me, and I always am asking myself, would they have resonated with my 20-year-old self? And I don't know. I wish they would have, and I wish somebody had been writing about that stuff when I was 20 instead of 63 now. But uh, tell us how you kind of came around to this type of focus? Well, I came around it the hard way by collapsing from the way I was living, you know, from stress, burnout, sleep deprivation, and hitting my head on my desk. That's the opening paragraph of Thrive. And, because uh, you've literally been working around the clock? Yes, and also because I had bought into the delusion that that's the only way to achieve. I mean, that's really the main problem of our culture. And I... The Huffington Post was two years old. I was the divorced mother of two teenage daughters, which is always complicated. And I thought that I could be superwoman and uh, I could do it all. And uh, I collapsed, hit, broke my cheekbone, and that was the beginning of my um, literally recognizing by looking at the data and the science that actually hundreds of millions of people are suffering and um, many of them um, with consequences much worse than what happened to, to me, like heart attacks, um, diabetes, you know, all these incredibly skyrocketing chronic diseases that we have now, which the Center for Disease Control clearly said are stress-related and preventable, at least three-quarters of them. 
And if you add mental health problems, which are skyrocketing, depression, anxiety, 90% of the healthcare problems we deal with are stress-related and preventable. It's truly an epidemic. And some of them self-inflicted. Oh, mm-hmm. all of Many. them. Yeah, all sure. of them really preventable means that we could actually change our behavior and change the outcomes. And uh, so I, I, I became so passionate about that, and I... At first, I covered these issues at the Huffington Post, but then by 2016, I decided that I actually wanted to dedicate 100% of the rest of my life to this. And so I left the Huffington Post to build Thrive Global, which is both a media platform. Think of it, the Huffington Post without politics, if you can think of the Huffington Post without politics. Uh, but also B2B, like going with into corporations and helping them change the culture, improve the well-being and performance because the two are connected of their employees and also a product, a digital product, behavior change product that we have been working on that gives you the kind of micro steps that you need to begin to change behavior. So I'm going to want to come back and find out what some of those micro steps yeah, are me and what too. some of those me tips too. are. But Claudia, you're also, you actually went through a, a phase of your life when you were very young where you, in effect, redefined what success looked like. You started out wanting to be a dancer mm-hmm. and actually trained yes. to be a dancer for a lot of years. Yeah, the so, first 20 years of my life, probably. Well, from the time I was five till the time I was 25. And where did the dancing start, and, and why did it end, and where did the cooking start? Uh, the dancing started, my mother tells me, because all little girls went to dancing school. So off I went to dancing school. Um, and I loved it, so I just kept doing it. Um, and then into my teens, um, it became you know, just a, a real driving passion in my life. And I continued to do it and um, aspired to do it professionally. But told myself that if at 25 I was not in a major dance company, then I was going to move on and do something else because dancers have pretty short lives. So if you're not doing it by the time you're 25, it's pretty much over by the time you're 30. So you were very intentional about Mm -hmm. and clear-eyed about the path you were on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, And it was and still is um, every bit, if not more so, demanding than the restaurant business. It's, you know, being a dancer, being an artist of any kind is a lifestyle, very much like the restaurant industry. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. You know, you give up weekends, you give up holidays, you give up nights, you give up health insurance for the most part. (laughs) At age 25, when I realized this wasn't going to happen for me, I floundered for a few years, but always worked in restaurants because, you know, they were, they were the job for the aspiring artist always. Continued working in restaurants for a while and found myself in 1985 at Jams in New York. It was right on 79th Street. And boy, it was like a thunderbolt. I thought, wow, this is so cool. I mean, there were Hockneys on the wall and, you know, an open kitchen and baby vegetables and duck in my salad and <laughs> just all these eye-opening, incredible things. Whereas before jams, we were, you know, eating chicken parmesan or whatever it was. Nothing is uh, sophisticated. And it, and it just showed me what a sophisticated industry it could be. 
and it was so exciting. Um, I just fell in love with it. Was it also a, um, was it another version of the artistic expression that was part of your life? Absolutely. I mean, it was like that creative Absolutely. impulse. Um, and as much as the creative thing, people, I think, get very disillusioned with, not disillusioned, but are misinformed about creativity. There's so much repetition and so much technique and so much hard work before you get to create. I mean, creating is comes really when you're experienced. Um, and all that repetition in a kitchen and all that technique was so reminiscent of being a dancer. And it came so naturally to me. Do, you know, cut a thousand onions? Sure, no problem. Like, I'm used <laughs> to repeating, repeating, repeating. That's so interesting. Because so how really... do you get better? Yeah. Unless you repeat, 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 repeat. Um, and, you know, there was the drama of preparation in the restaurant industry all day and showtime at night. And for, you know, the same went for dancing. There was all that practice, practice, practice before performance. Um, so there were a lot of parallels for me that, that the lifestyle was comfortable for me. Um, the creativity came much later. So I stumbled onto a good analogy. <laughs> just, yeah. just totally wandered into it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's- but that's really interesting. And now, um, as you don't have to be the person that cuts the onion a thousand mm-hmm. times, is it is it more on the creative side? Yes. The I think the the creative started for me when I worked at Gramercy Tavern and I was hired as the pastry chef and you know, I had a large staff and now owning my own business, I realize what a luxury it is to create. You know, you you get to just indulge in thoughts of what if this what if that I could do this I can do that how great Ooh, I'll try this I'll try that owning a business it's just day-to-day monotony um so it's very different and Ariana where does creative expression fit in the template of the things that are important for uh, a successful life or a life of contentment I always think it's like for me I feel like it would be very important but is that is that a staple for everybody? Does it have to be? I think it's very important, but it can take so many different forms. I mean, already you found it in dancing and you found it in uh, being a pastry chef and now in uh, owning your own restaurant and in. And I see, you know, you think of artists as dancers and painters. I have a younger daughter who did art at Yale and she's making a modest living selling her art and all her art is all around this office. And you can say that's art, right? But also my older daughter works for Now This, which is a video media company, and she produces videos. And that's a creative expression too. Or um, I'm constantly working on the content we produce, on the digital products for behavior change, and that has its own form of creative expression. But I think ultimately... The, for me, the biggest art form is how we live our lives. And that's available to everybody. That's an art in itself. That's an art in itself. And most of us don't pay enough attention to it. But how we live our lives, um, what we value, what we prioritize, what we allow to stress us, create a sort of this art form. 
that becomes our life. And the fact that we keep evolving and making it better, I like what you said about cutting <laughs> onions a thousand times. In a sense, repetition, 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 Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours also gives us a certain mastery. Mm-hmm. And we think of it of mastery over our craft, but it's also like mastery over how I live, we live our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were running Huffington Post, of the many things that amazed me about Huffington Post, one was that if I emailed you about something, you emailed right back. I'm sure everybody's told you this. You're like the most responsive person in the world. And I always said to myself, Ariana must never sleep. And I must have been right, right? You weren't sleeping. <laughs> you were working around, around the clock. But it was really like quite incredible. And I know that sleep is a big part of your message now and it's part it, it it goes part and parcel with what it takes to thrive in the sense that you describe it what have you learned about that and i'm personally like very interested in this because i feel like i've spent most of my life up until i started reading your work on sleep i spent most of my life developing all kinds of strategies to sleep less yes <laughs> right? yes i was like i had a zillion of them and a lot of them worked for me except i was exhausted most of the time right and And that's really why I think this is such an amazing moment we're living through. Because for decades, you know, we all believed that in order to achieve, and uh, not just in your personal life, but, you know, everything you wanted to do, which was really to help people and children and, um, and hunger, you know, so you, a lot of my friends who are activists like you, who've dedicated their lives to a big cause, feel that if they sleep, they are somehow letting down all the millions of children who depend on you not sleeping. That's what we think to to eat. And it's totally untrue. That's it's what really, opposite, really we're right. realizing. That in fact, for all of us, what moves the needle, whether it's in a non-profit or a for-profit business, are, are creative ideas. And um, they are the first to be sacrificed when we're exhausted and running on empty. Also, when we're exhausted and running on empty, we have all the scientific data that proves that, but we also have our own experience that shows that we are the worst version of ourselves. Like, I I actually really positively dislike myself when I'm exhausted and running on empty because I'm less empathetic, I'm more reactive. I get more upset by the slightest thing. And also, I can still do transactional things and get stuff done, but the joy goes out of life. Mm -hmm. And now, for me, that's a bit of a barometer, and that's what we teach at Thrive. If your life is just about productivity and there's no joy, there's something wrong. You need to recalibrate. And you recalibrate through micro steps. You know, you don't recalibrate through big resolutions. It's like small, little, incremental, daily changes. I read that one of yours was to be intentional about declaring when the end of your workday yes. is, right? So you say, you say at the beginning, I'm not working past six or seven. Well, or actually, no, it's not so much that. It's not about the specific time. It's just about the fact that I'm sure... Claudia and you and I and everybody listening could keep working through the night and not reach an end to the, to the day. 
So at some point, whatever that time is, if it's 10 o'clock, it's 10 o'clock. If it's 11 o'clock, it's 11 o'clock. That's, that's why I'm saying it's a micro step. Yeah. You got to pick a day and intentionally say, this is the end of my working day. And because human beings learn through ritual, the ritual is you turn off your phone and you take it outside your bedroom. You escort it out of your bedroom to charge away from you. In fact, we've made these little beds, I which are charging idea. stations. I love that about that. I love that. I will say, I will give you one, and you, of <laughs> and, course, and the phone Billy. goes in a bed. Yeah, the whole yeah. family's phone. The family. Whole family. Right? There's yeah. room for 10 phones and iPads, <laughs> and they charge because it's a charging station. But the idea is, again, it's a ritual. You put them under the blankie. You tuck them in. I really do that at night. And... I I disconnect from my world because this is not really a phone. We've got to find a different name for it. Right. Yeah, right. It's like the repository of every problem, every project, everything we're dealing with is in that device. So we need to disconnect from it the way when we put our children to sleep when they're little, you know, we read them good night moon which is, again, this is like, it's psychologically very profound. It's like we're helping them disconnect mm-hmm. from their bears and their and the moon and everything around them so that they can actually surrender to sleep. Well, we need some form ourselves. In fact, I've done a parody of Goodnight Moon you can download from Audible <laughs> called Goodnight Smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to find that. Well, you know, I've got a 13-year-old son. Uh, and this is such a sad commentary on the state of the world. But in our family, my wife and I consider it success if he's only on one screen. It used to be like we don't <laughs> have times where there, there's no screens. Now if we can get him down to one screen, like we're watching a family movie and he's also got his phone and the iPad right. and he's playing a game on one and he's right. Snapchatting with his friends on another. <laughs> and like, I mean, we're, you know, we've drawn some boundaries around it. But, how but sad does is he that? sleep yeah. with his phone? No, no, no. His phone okay. is not in Good. his room when he sleeps. I leave mine Definitely in the kitchen. Not. Uh, now, Claudia, it seemed to resonate with you when Ariana was talking about this notion of, of uh, productivity and, and creativity and one not necessarily equaling the other. And as somebody who made the shift from a, a New York City restaurant like Gramercy Tavern to something that's maybe a little bit more seasonal, you were telling me um, North Fork Table Inn's open four days a week right now because we're in the off season. Uh, has that created a big lifestyle change for you? Um, you know, when I was at Gramercy, I actually had a schedule. I don't have a schedule now. I own a business. So, you know, if I'm not in the kitchen, then I'm sitting down trying to figure out the next, you know, campaign to get more people into my restaurant Mm -hmm. or, you know, communicating with people or trying to get closer to the community that I live in. Or so you, as you were saying, you can literally never stop. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, Ariana, but I'm a big advocate of naps. I take yes. a lot of naps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> naps I good. go to the inn at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, make breakfast for guests. I'll stay till 3.30 or 4, go home, walk, walk my dog, feed her, come back to work until, you know, hopefully 10 o'clock at night. Like, again, you can stay all night. Yes. But if you don't say, I'm leaving, you just, you can hang out all the time. Um and not be very productive. Yes. You know, work smart, not a lot. But it's hard. It's really hard. No, I think naps are great, especially if you have not gotten enough sleep. And 
the majority of people need seven to nine hours. Where you are in that spectrum depends on you individually. But there is also one to one and a half percent of the population that has a genetic mutation and they don't need a lot of sleep. So if if one of the listeners is one of these people, they are one of these people and that's fine. But the vast majority need that much sleep. We have we have a room here with a nap pod, which has a privacy visor. So if people, if somebody's tired for whatever reason, um, jet lagged or any other reason they didn't get enough sleep, they can go have a nap. And I they, totally use agree. they use it. And they use it, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the old days, or maybe just before two years ago, before you started advocating for better sleep, it was competitive how little you yes. slept. Right. Right? It was right. like, oh, I only got four. Oh, four hours. I only got three and a half yes, hours. Exactly. Like, everybody <laughs> would say People how little would. sleep they got and be so proud of it. Well, we even have the... You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Right. You snooze, you lose. You have all that language, too, yes, yes. that confirmed the cult- what we valued culturally. And are you finding that um, people who are following your advice, I mean, are, there, are, are you getting, I guess, testimony to the fact that people's lives have changed for the better? Oh, absolutely. But in fact, there are a lot more people than we knew who actually were sleeping even before I started talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, like Jeff Bezos told me over dinner once that he he gets eight hours of sleep, nothing to do with me, Um, and he said this because it improves his decision-making. And he said, I have noticed that if I get six my decisions are 5 to 20% less good. So he analyzed it. So I, he wrote about it because I asked everybody who has anything to say uh, about how they manage their lives and include not just sleep but any kind of recharging ritual to write about it because we are finding that that's what moves the needle. Mm-hmm. We can bring together the latest science, ancient wisdom, but people want to hear from others in the arena. And food must be a part of that, right? We should be like, Definitely. I mean, Claudia, you should be writing for Thrive Global. Yes, really, please, because food Claudia, is a big part. we would love you to. And also about your naps. I love naps. They, I mean, really, they save me. Absolutely. I could never do work 14 hours a day if I didn't have naps. Well, and a lot of people just don't really appreciate the degree to which your food so profoundly affects your health, not just like if you're overweight and at your risk of heart disease or something like that, but just everything you eat actually makes a difference in how you feel. I'm thinking of a chef like Seamus Mullen who was sick with rheumatoid arthritis and totally changed his life just through his diet. I mean, he was yes. like debilitated. And we are literally what we eat. Yeah, I mean, we There's are. There's no question. So. And we see it all around us now with yes. the rise in diabetes yes. and the terrible processed foods everywhere around us and... And I think it's very important, especially with the work, Billy, you're doing, to realize that this is not just for affluent people, that it's really key that we teach young children what are the foods to avoid, number one, because I think if we can start somewhere, let's start with what not to eat. <laughs> and And if you think of so much of what's being fed to children at school, it's processed food. Yes. It's food loaded with sugar. And that starts them on that terrible journey that 
almost inevitably, if it's not arrested, it will lead to diabetes. Yeah. Some of it actually starts uh, in prenatal uh, terms because kids, you know, your, your body and your cells develop certain cravings. There's things they need if they've become used to it. And you don't know that at any conscious level, certainly not as a baby, but you start gravitating towards the wrong things. So, thing. so uh, to ask important. you, Billy, um, what are the obstacles you are finding in getting school districts to provide not just food, but healthy food? Yeah. Well, uh, it's a great question, Ariana, and there's a number of obstacles to healthy food for kids. It's changing. It's getting better. I'm actually optimistic that it's going to go in the right direction. I often use Boston as an example of one obstacle because for um, many, many years, uh, Boston's food was cooked uh, on Long Island uh, in New York and frozen and put on a truck and maybe showed up in Boston, who knows what, a month later, and thought because... Boston's public schools are very old infrastructure physically. There's no kitchens in them, so they can't cook real food. There's now an effort underway, and one of our guests on this podcast, Jill Shaw, uh, whose husband um, is the founder of Wayfair, the home furnishings business, they've created a foundation, and they're building kitchens in Boston public schools, and the schools are converting to real food, and kids are eating vegetables, and they're eating broccoli, and you, know, you, you, just like, you wouldn't believe what kids are taking off the salad bar and eating and not throwing away. So that's one issue. The other issue, won't surprise you, is um, some of this is uh, political and corporate, right? So there's big vested interests in feeding school systems certain types of food. And so when you're in an advocacy battle as a small nonprofit or even a big nonprofit uh, against large sections of the the corporate sector, that gets, you know, those odds are are pretty daunting. But I think even the corporations that... uh, are, are making and selling foods that aren't healthy. They see the writing on the wall. They know they have to change. It's a question of can they do it in a way that makes sense for their economics. So we're getting to, I think we're getting to a better place on that. It's like trying to stop a freight train. It's really hard. It, it's, it's really hard. And people are getting more and more accustomed to the idea of introducing better foods into school systems. Yeah. I mean, a lot of schools start, you know, um, gardens. A lot of children don't even realize where food comes from. Where food comes from, that and basis. once they see it, once they yes. are involved with it growing, they're interested in eating it. Yep. Um, and so, you know, chefs do that kind of work also, going into schools and teaching kids what to do with this food. And sometimes they're excited about it, and you know, they'll even ask for it by name. Well, something I think you would love, Ariana, because you were so instrumental and were such a force in AmeriCorps and national service and the whole national service movement. I remember you and I had lots of meetings and lots of battles over the years uh, on that, on the same side of those battles. But there's now an organization called Food Corps, which is part of AmeriCorps, and it's a core of young people that go into schools and just work on helping the schools convert to healthier Mm -hmm. foods and teaching the kids about it. They're a big partner of ours at Share Our Strength right now. And uh, in some ways, it's an offshoot of some of the work that you you did when you were working on national service Well, stuff. it's fantastic. And, and you mentioned uh, big corporations. And one of the things they're realizing, we work a lot with P&G, for example. And now they're not a food company, but they have all the data that shows that any product associated with wellness uh, sells and grows twice as fast. Hmm. So, again, it's what you said. They see the writing on the wall. Yep. And so companies have a, a much greater incentive mm. to 
to innovate in different product lines. Now, speaking of politics, um, which we mentioned, um, I think of you as such a political person. I'm wondering, have you changed your relationship to politics? Or you? No, or, I'm, I'm very political. I use my Twitter feed to comment a lot on politics, but also... Because it's I, easy to lose sleep over our politics well, that's today. That's why I, I ask. That's, I wrote a piece, actually, um, about how much we can learn from the civil rights movement. Because civil rights leaders were very disciplined. And I feel sometimes that all our friends, who obviously are as outraged as we are about what's happening, um, deplete their energy with this like pointless tweeting or texting each other, can you believe that, and what about that? And I feel we need to be very, very protective of our energy and use it wisely, and use it to actually bring about change rather than simply venting. Mm. And um, I found, you know, throwing Sarah Huckabee Sanders out of a restaurant is venting. It doesn't advance the cause. So what I'm urging everyone here is to to be very intentional again about what is the goal and how we use our energy because ultimately that's what matters. I think a lot of people don't know what to do. Well, there are always things to do. I mean, whether it's uh, registering people or getting people out to vote or mm-hmm. uh, organizing. You know, here we have one of the great organizers in Billy who can give advice. There is a lot that can be done. And um, and I think people can get creative about what they want to do or find out what others are doing and get involved. But definitely the, there is absolutely no benefit in doing long, can you believe that, tweets outrage. or texts. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, this kind yeah. of perpe- living in a perpetual state of outrage mm-hmm. without taking action that will change outcomes is not helping anybody. And also, they find it, as you said, harder to sleep, they're more stressed, and they're therefore less effective. Yeah, and, and it is, um, I guess to some degree, our, our politics feel a little bit unprecedented. If you have a long view of history, you know that there have been times where things have been seemed more extreme than others. But for a lot of people alive today, this does seem incredibly stressful. And I agree. I think the most important thing to do is find some productive way to contribute. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Claudia, whether you ever imagined that chefs would have the platform that they have today to make a difference in the world. I mean, one of the things that's been amazing to us is we started working at Share Strength in 1984 just as chefs were starting to become celebrities. And so now, of course, they have TV shows, but they also have voices, and some of them are very politically active. Some are active on issues like uh, food quality, and some are active on uh, issues like sustainability and uh, and, and farm-to-table and uh, slow food movement. Um, it, and, it's, it's, and it's interesting because it's not really a political community, and in some ways that gives it more political power because right, you're not just the usual suspects who are always at the barricades. You're passionate about food and its impact on people's lives. It's kind of just a natural connection that you have to politics because food is politics. You can't get away from the fact that agribusiness runs a good portion of our government. It heavily influences how people vote. And 
chefs came by it accidentally. I think that there's no greater way to affect change than by, of course, bringing people together. And as chefs, we do that. I mean, because Mm -hmm. there's nothing more nurturing than feeding people. And that's what we do. We feed people. And so just by virtue of that fact, I feel like we have this platform to bring people to the table, literally, to try to help change minds about how people eat, how people treat the people who produce our food, which is huge, and how they can just bring people together in a way that gives them a voice to help them change politics. I love that. Here's an idea that my wife, Rosemary, had. She, by the way, I sleep about five and a half hours. She sleeps eight. And to your point, Ariana, her ideas are always better than mine. (laughs) Sometimes I get credit for them. Okay, well, Billy, I have to work on you. I got to be your sleep coach. You're getting better. I think I'm getting better. Eight Um, for me, too. But yeah, and and when I do sleep eight, I feel like amazing. And I actually, you know, come up with your best ideas. Or, you know, everything. Uh, But Rosemary's idea was we were talking about could you get, um, could you take uh, some group of senators and members of the House? Because, you know, many of them live in group houses, like, right, like Chuck Schumer has three roommates, and uh, my wife, Rosemary, has cousins with a, a, a relatively new congressman from Glen Cove named Tom Swazi, and he's got two roommates, Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey and, uh, and uh, Leon Panetta's son, Jim uh, Panetta. Anyhow, Rosemary's idea was could you create some cooking classes in Washington, D.C. for like five or six Republicans and five or six yeah. Democrats together so that they could come together over food? I actually think it's a pretty cool idea. I love idea that. Because, you know, they have some Maybe we can get caucuses. Claudia to, to do the dessert. Are you in? Yeah. Are you in? Are you kidding me? In a hot second, I'm there. I feel like if you cooked for them and Ariana came talk to them about how to be a little bit more healthy and mindful in their but lives. But you know what? Mm-hmm. That, that could be, be amazing. Thing. I think what Claudia said is so true that over food we are more likely to um, come together. Yes. And I know my, you know, Claudia, you'll be very disappointed in me. Uh, the only thing I can I do is it. cook an egg. But <laughs> I but I, eggs. But my mother was like an amazing cook. And she also, I think, believed that if you didn't eat every 20 minutes, something terrible would happen to you. <laughs> And she, there was always food. She was always, and she lived with me um, and helped me bring up my children and food everywhere. And so, but there's an incredible power in, as you said, nurturing and uh, bringing people together over a meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a meal that you learn to cook yourselves, right? That yes. You yes. don't just have... Catered, or, you, and you cook, or you cook together, to, you to cook your wife's together. point. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, mean, and, I mean, especially because, you know, there's so few opportunities now where Democrats and Republicans are actually together in any civil way, right? That used to be they'd hang out in the cloakroom and this or that. And nowadays, unless there's a, you know, there's a, I think there's a faith-based caucus and there's a, yeah. um, I was at the uh, Edward Kennedy Institute for the Senate and they had a, a, an across the aisle conversation with two Republicans and two Democrats. And uh, they had, a, I forget his name, it was a congressman from Oklahoma. And he's the informal chair of the, the, the workout caucus, the gym caucus, because he was a former ah. physical trainer. He was a, you know, a, a, really? uh, I think he was a Taekwondo instructor or something like that. But uh, so, Democrats and Republicans come into the House gym, and he trains them. 
and they develop these relationships across the aisle, you know, just informally, Fantastic. which is better than anything you could ever do. Better than martinis. Formally. But I think yeah. we should do something <laughs> over food. Um, so I want to hear, uh, as we kind of wrap up, what is next for each of you. Uh, Ariana, you've like lived your entire life in the future. Like you've always been ahead. And I just like, as I listen to you, I think like you, you're just, you're years, you know, you're years ahead of where most people are. And that must, that must be exhausting in and of itself. <laughs> but are you writing another book? No, I'm done with books. I've really? written 15 books. 15 is a good number. Yeah. <laughs> and nice now my, my focus is all in um, reaching as many millions of people as possible around the world because it is a global epidemic to help them take these micro steps to change outcomes in their lives. And, and our priority here is building our digital products because there are only so many people you can reach live, although live will always be an important part of what we are doing. But products that can help people integrate these micro steps in their lives and give them content that help re-inspire them and educate them. And, um, and I'm excited to see more and more people being open to the fact that there is another way to live our lives. And the word thrive for us means not just surviving, but thriving. So Thrive Global is the place to go to learn more about micro steps, sleep, wellness, mindfulness. And also, we'd love to invite anybody listening to share their stories. Yes. And they can um, email me at ah at thriveglobal.com. That's my favorite thing, is people sharing their stories, because that's how we learn. Mm -hmm. And we are all inspired by different people. And um, also, when we share our story, it reinforces what we are doing. What's next for you, Claudia? Got your hands full with the restaurant. Got that my doesn't hands leave full a lot of time restaurant. for anything else. Um, but, you know, I, I really, as I get older, one really does feel the need to want to connect more strongly and give back more to a community that has been so good to me. So I, I would like to start doing more uh, community-based projects and get more involved in the school system and teaching kids to eat healthier. Because I do have a staff. So I don't have to be there yeah. every single second. And it just seems a good time in my life to start exploring other things other than being tied to a stove. Okay. So let's do, <laughs> the, let's yeah. do the cooking thing. Let's do the cooking oh, thing for thing. Republicans thing. and Democrats. I think, and I also, think it'd really be cool. I love that. And also we have a Thrive Foundation. would love to work with you and Claudia to educate um, school children both about eating healthy and sleeping, and there is and recharging. You know, we have seen um, bringing meditations into school has had a big impact. Um, teaching children that getting enough sleep makes them better at school, and also actually makes it less likely that they are going to be drawn to mm. sugars and bad carbs. Mm -hmm. And all the things that we are drawn to when we are sleep deprived. That's right. And and so the Thrive Foundation. Yes. Just tell us how that works. The Thrive Foundation is basically committed to bringing all uh, these lessons and these micro steps to communities that cannot afford them, um, including we've done it for women in prisons who are about to be released to help them be prepared. 
to be more resilient as they reintegrate themselves into life outside prison. So, I mean, we would love to work with you. You know, you are uh, you are somebody, as you know, Billy, who uh, that I admire so much and having followed your work for so many years and your writings, I would love to work with you and bring something like that to schools. Okay, we're going to find a way. I'm so glad that we are here at Thrive Global's headquarters. Well, thank you both. One, I guess one last thing, since you only cook eggs, you must (laughs) eat out at least occasionally. But I love eggs. I love eggs. uh, And you you know a lot about restaurants, so a lot of our (laughs) listeners are foodies. And I think they want to know where, if there's like a little place off the beaten path or a go-to place that you think people should know about. It might not be the most famous restaurant in the world. It might just be one of the little gems of New York or Long Island. Where? What should we know about? Uncle Boone's. Uncle Boone's. Where's that? Oh, it's right down here. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uncle Boone's. Uncle what kind Boone's. of food? Thai. Okay. It's extraordinary. Amazing. And actually, the husband and wife team, Dan and Annie, uh, Dan is from the North Fork. Um, but they have this fantastic, authentic, amazing Thai restaurant right down here. Uncle Boone's. I'm going there tomorrow night. (laughs) So great. Go with a bunch of people. (laughs) So um, my favorite restaurant is called King's, and it's run by three women who founded it, and uh, it's tiny. Where is it? Um, On King Street. On King Street. Street? Yes, (laughs) Yes. downtown. (laughs) And it's absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. And the women are amazing. And they they really are there. This is their baby. And they do everything, like you were saying, Claudia, you know, from uh, cooking to taking care of the bills and the staff. And, and I love it. These are great tips. Uncle Boone's and King's. Claudia Fleming. Thank you so much, North Fork Table and Inn, and longtime supporter of Share Our Strength. It's just really a treat to be with you. Ariane Huffington, thank you for hosting us at Thrive Global. It's a thrill to be at your headquarters. You're right in the heart of the city. We've probably heard some, our listeners have probably heard some sirens yes. during this <laughs> podcast, but uh, that's okay. This is a vibrant, dynamic place. And as I mentioned to you when you came in, you just have an amazing team that works for you and is inspired by you. And you could tell that just being in the door for five minutes, they're incredible and they're hospitable and they are thriving. So that's been a treat to be exposed to them. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Um, And to all of those listening to Add Passion and Stir, thanks for listening. Please go to our website, addpassionandstir.com. You can find other episodes. You can rate us. You can rank us. You can subscribe. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Paul Woodle, Woody, who's here from D.C., always with us and makes this podcast great. And our team at Share Strength, including my sister Debbie Shore and Kelly Griffin. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.